Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being here. And I'll just add to what Chris was saying and say also that not only is BAFTA incredible and uh, this, these talents incredible for giving up their time, but uh, these things cost money and we really appreciate the support of Three Mills Studios for um, helping us put together an event like this tonight. So thanks to Three Mills. Um, welcome, everybody. And uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. We, last year, this time last year, there was a bit of a um, peculiar moment, I think, for British television in that suddenly there was a kind of single water cooler moment that everybody was anticipating. And it started with the kind of big campaign for this new project, National Treasure. And um, there was definitely a real sense of anticipation, partly because we knew that it was tapping into a particular subject, a particularly a kind of morally complex, um, uh, you know, big current news, news story. Um, the the, uh, the um, yew tree um, uh, investigation was, had sort of run most of its course, but it was still very much a kind of live, kind of contemporary issue. Um, partly because on all those big posters, we saw a cast of real national treasures, you know, people like Julie Walters, people like Tim McInerney, um, and people like uh, Robbie um, Coltrane, who of course was back on screen after a kind of five-year hiatus. So there was lots of kind of anticipation around that. Um, and um, I think also there was a real sense of anticipation around the kind of talent, the kind of creative talent behind the project. So uh, not just the kind of super writer, Jack Thorne, but also um, incredible directing talent from Mark um, and incredible, uh, you know, behind the camera, behind the scenes, uh, craft performances, uh, editing, cinematography. So it's absolutely brilliant that the thing went onto our screens, as uh, Chris said, just scooped up audiences and scooped up awards, um, the, not just in the UK, but everywhere else too. Um, today's brilliant chance for us to kind of really forensically dissect it. And what we'll do is we have a few clips um, and I will kick off with a few questions and hopefully we'll have a bit of a conversation. But absolutely, this is your opportunity. So we will have a moment to ask you specifically if you have questions, but please feel free as we go along, if you want clarity or if you want um, to, to dig further into something, to, to, to jump in. We're, we're fine with that. Okay. Um, so let's introduce who we've got on stage. At the end here is Mark Munden, um, who is, of course, the director, the award-winning, BAFTA award-winning director um, and executive producer of this project. Um, huge track record in television and films, in single films, uh, Vanity Fair, Utopia, Devil's Whore, and, of course, the BAFTA-winning Mark of Cain. Um, Next to me, Luke Dunkley, who is the editor, uh, who has just come off uh, Dark River, Clio Bernard's latest film, huge success in Toronto. Um, also, um, big number on The Crown, The Fades, Utopia with Mark. Um, Ulla Brat Berkeland, Berkeland, I messed that up, didn't I? Oh, Berkeland, Berkeland, Berkeland. Okay, there we go. Um, who is the cinematographer? Um, again, crossing between features and television. So, uh, most recently, things like my personal favourite of last year, Date for Mad Mary, uh, The Crown, The Arbor, um, Little Stranger has just just wrapped, and um, and we will see that next year, uh, and Utopia with with Mark as well. Um, and then, of course, we have Tim McInerney, who is the star of the show, the lead actor, who really is the kind of moral compass of the film, I think, the, the, the person who, um, you know, he, he, he is neither one thing or the other. He's neither black nor white. We, um, he, <laughs> he, he, he guides us through the kind of moral uh, questions of the film. Um, of course, we all, I, you need no introduction, beloved of 
Blackadder, Game of Thrones, uh, from Shakespeare to Doctor Who, but also significantly you've worked with Mark on Utopia before. Um, oh, and Devil's Whore as well. So we've got lots of time. We've got lots to, lots to ask them. Um, just before we get going, um, let's take a little reminder clip just to kind of... I, I'm, we're going to assume that everybody has seen this because otherwise you're going to have some horrible spoilers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but just to kind of get you back in the vibe, we'll, let's just see the opening of, the, of uh, National Treasure. And that was the last funny moment in there, really, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Mark, let's start. Yeah, <laughs> let's start with you. Um, tell us about the genesis of the project. Just kind of describe, uh, you know, particularly about the who, who came up with this idea and at which point did you come on board? Um, well, George Faber, who um, is the head of the production company, The Forge, um, really, really experienced executive producer, brilliant, brilliant man and guru, came up with. The idea, really, um, you know, some clips. There'd been a lot of uh, real-life cases around that time. This was 2014, 15, um, and said, you know, how about we make something about this? I think there's something really interesting to be had. And um, 
that's how it started. Went to Channel 4, Channel 4 said yes, Piers Wenger said yes. And then it was about getting someone who really, who could turn their hand to it, uh, a writer that could be, you know, make something special out of it. Um, uh, so Jack Thorne came in, he said, I know exactly how to do this. Um, I mean, Jack is, Jack is sort of, is brilliant, but he also is steeped in comedy. His, his, his uh, uh, partner is a comedy agent, and his brother-in-law is Frank Skinner, um, and he, he absolutely knows that world, so it was a really good place to start, and he just, he just wrote. I mean, we did have various conversations about, you know, what are we trying to get out of this? And, and, and the thing that really, you know, the thing that really interested me was the sort of grey area around the abuse of uh, power by celebrities um, and uh, the, yeah, just the sort of greyness of that, as it were, and, 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 and the sort of collusion by other people in the media. Um, so, uh, you know, we worked towards that over four episodes of him writing. Can I get you to be a bit more specific about what it was that you had at the point when you went to him? So you knew you wanted to make something around the kind of U-tree type uh, situation. Yeah. But what did you have? Did you have a central character? Did you have... No, you nothing. Have? We didn't have anything. And, and, and Jack really sort of, you know, Jack is the missing person here, you know. Um, I mean, he really came up with this character. He, you know, he... I mean, it, the, the script changed over time because it was told from the original script was in five parts and it was told from five different points of view um, uh, but it, he gradually honed it to be about the celebrity himself so so um, uh, and and it, and it gradually became just about the impact of this accusation on the family and the way that the fragile bonds in a family, in this particular family, are shattered apart by the accusation, um, together with the is he innocent or is he guilty element. And how much did you, I mean, to what extent did you then step back from the kind of real life of what was going on, what had gone on with Utree and was still sort of sort of bubbling under? I mean, how how much were you able to um, separate the kind of real life from the drama that you were trying to tell? Well. Never, because you're sort of. He, he did a lot of research with with um, police who had investigated these cases, uh, barristers and solicitors. Um, so he was always sort of feeding off that. And I, I, I think one of the difficulties of such a thing is, you know, you just have to avoid any sort of. Uh, coincidence in terms of you know who these fictional characters are and. Uh, whether they, whether they are actually, could be confused with real people. So it's you know it's a it's a legal nightmare in that respect. So you're you're always, you know, getting close to the real life cases and pulling away from that. Um, and you know there there were you know there was there were, you know it was very very important that we didn't um, either. Uh, interfere in some inadvertent way with cases that were going on, but also, um, you know, there were names that could have been, we had to change because they were too similar to real life cases, the names in real life cases, things like that. So you're always playing with that. And, you know, obviously, it's, in some ways, it's, you know, Jack wrote it as a social realist piece. 
and um, it, it feeds off very of two things. I mean, the very real incidents of these cases, but also very, very, you know, the very real emotion, family emotion, the family dynamics of that, which is totally fictional in his head, you know. So, so it's not all sort of documentary mm -hmm. realism. It's interesting that you say that because um, I understand that this is this was done in a in a slightly in a more cinematic um, way than uh, conventional television is. You produced it in a way that was uh, you know with a kind of particular rehearsal period with your actors and then you know kind of shooting it as if it was a feature film. Is that? Is that just some journalist? Um, you mean the the production process? Yeah, the kind of the way that you all kind of went into it. It didn't. It didn't. I mean, certainly for a viewer, it doesn't feel like a Tele traditional piece of television. It feels like a. It almost feels like a sort of single drama. Um, well, that's nice. I mean, my my. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's not. You know, that's very flattering. I mean, I, I I suppose you know I always rehearse. I mean, Tim can talk a bit about that. I mean, that's what one of the you know things that I feel is very very important. I always rehearse in a rehearsal room, and I think over a quarter of a page, I'll you know I'll I'll you know. And and the thing about rehearsals is not just about the scenes. It's about allowing the actors to find their characters and make mistakes and take risks and doing things that they wouldn't normally be able to do on set because you've got 100 people waiting for you know for things to happen you know they want, you know people want to turn over so um, th there's always rehearsals um, I'll, I'll always work very very closely with the writer so that I can excavate more and more out of the text um, uh, than, than is on you know than is on the page um, just asking lots of questions and very often I have a writer in the rehearsal process mm -hmm. as well I mean in terms of sh shooting, it, I mean, it was shot, you know, four hours all over the place, you know, episode four, scene five, and then episode one, scene three, you know, just like all, a feature you know, like, like a feature <laughs> film, you know, except you're doing it across episodes. Yeah. But I think that's pretty traditional. I'm not sure that we worked any differently in this process than any um, TV series we've done before. Um, but, uh, and... You know the references we had were very much film references, mm -hmm. so it may be that that's influencing the, the, the you know the, the the way that people perceive the piece. Okay, Tim, should we uh, yeah. get your take on what, particularly for, in the first instance? Kind of why did you get involved? What was it that what was the kind of nub of the pitch that you that you jumped at? Um, well, I mean, basically, I think for any actor, it's, it 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 comes down to um, to two things. First of all, a great script. I mean, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of good scripts. Uh -huh. There's a lot of good television made. Inevitably, there's not a lot of great television made because otherwise it wouldn't be great. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, that's that's a given. But uh, <laughs> you know it. You know it when you read it. You know it. You know when something is special. You know uh, when you can already see the the levels involved. You can see the 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 subtlety. Uh, in the characterization, um, doing some of your work for you, yes. <laughs> which is nice, and then um, and then uh, uh, working with Mark, mm -hmm. basically, mm -hmm. who I think is best director on television. Just going back to that, you you know it when you read it. Have Not you? just on television, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> film as well. <laughs> but when you say you know it when you read it, have you yeah. all? Uh, do you think that's something that, as an actor, that, that comes with experience? Like, did you always know it when you read it? Um, I think you kind of do. Uh -huh. I think it's an instinctive thing, um, partly. 
It's, it's to do with, uh, I'll tell you what happens is that you start off with, with most scripts, most actors start off by reading their part. Of course. You know, <laughs> and you skip through the rest of it. You think, yeah, yeah I'm not in that, I'm not in that. No. Ah. <laughs> ah, speech. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you go through it. What happened with this was that you, you start, I started off with that intention and then read it and couldn't put it down. Mm -hmm. So you, you lose um, your, uh, your, your, uh, your selfish, self-interested take on it mm -hmm. and just read it and are gripped by it as a story. Then when you get to the end and you think, I can't, I can't remember what I was supposed to have been doing you know, in order for me to be, uh, to be uh, clinical about accepting the part. I can't remember. I just that was amazing. So I had to read it again. <laughs> so I read it. So I read it twice on a, straight off. Uh, and then you kind of know okay. there's something special going on. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think about what, how different the script that the script that you came up with and the script that you and Jack came up with and the script that you read. How different is it from the script that you worked on? I mean, how did you? You know, what, where was it when you got to it? <laughs> I guess when we get involved, it's quite close to the end of the starting shooting. So the scripts, you know, even though we get involved slightly prior to the rehearsal period, you know, the structure is there and most of what's there. And so there's minor things that change, but, you know, in essence, what we're preparing to shoot is what's already been gone through several times. Mm -hmm. That's not what ends up on screen, though. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you that. Well, well, Luke's got so, a different, so how different he's, he's, he's got the job of making a sense of the Dardice mess that I've made <laughs> of it, it on was the it set. Monstrous you know. script. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, the, the script is great, so we actually don't think we changed that much scene order wise, right. which is what you quite often you end up doing mm -hmm. on episodic TV is moving scenes around. I think we only moved one scene majorly, which was the last scene, ended up in the middle. Yeah, but it's a lot of cuts, I think. Probably. How but do you come up with, who comes up with the four-part concept? Is that a jack? Or? Yeah, well, it's going to be five parts, and then, uh, you know, the, the, the original, uh, I mean, I, I have to say, before, before anything else, this, was, this is the best script that I've ever read. I mean, Jack's script, I mean, I hope, you know, at some point it could be published. It really is the most incredible piece of writing, and I, I think anyone that's, you know, is, sees the series, we'll see that immediately. It's full of these great, great long speeches. Um, but the original idea was to d do it from the, 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 the uh, DI, the Nadine Marshall character's point of view, one episode. <coughs> one episode <coughs> from Paul's point of view, one episode from Mari's point of view. You know, it was like that. Um, and that, that changed a lot as we went through. And I think, I, I can't remember why it, it went down from five episodes to four episodes, except that it really it, it ceased to become about different characters' points of view and more about the sort of you know the story uh, unfolding, as it were. So mm -hmm. so uh, it, it may have been a Channel Four decision. I can't really remember. Mm -hmm. Do you always n do you always have a sense of what the kind of most comfortable uh, size for a piece is? I mean, when you get an idea like that, how do you, how do you know? Oh, it's a it's, a, it's an episodic TV, or it's a 
you know, two-parter or it's a single drama? Or well, we, no, it was always going to be a mini-series. That it was always going to be that. It was it wasn't going to be any longer than that. Um, I mean, it's really to do with the writing. And Jack Jack made that decision. I mean, he knew that it had to be four or five hours, and mm -hmm. you know, he was going to write it to that end. We always knew that it would it would. Um, after the decision was made for us, it not to be from different people's point of view, we always knew that it was going to end up in a court case as well. And we would find out, the audience would find out whether Paul Finchley did it or not. So, you know, that was always um, set, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and very quickly, Jack said that he was going to write most of episode four in, in a court, you know, which frightened me. <laughs> idea of doing a courtroom <laughs> drama, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and that was another thing of you know how do you shoot something like that with people just talking in court all the time. Um, uh, but 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 that was all, you know that that the sense of that um, coming to that conclusion after four hours. Uh, was really just, you know, when I read the script, it just made sense, you know. And, uh, you know, obviously it's not just about whether he's innocent or guilty. There's, you know, by that time, that's just one element that you're wanting to find out about. It's just one, you know, you know th there's all sorts of other things which are as interesting, I think, as that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the casting. Before we do, and just as a reminder, because you just mentioned the courtroom, I think we're going to show a clip which is your witness stand moment. Oh. Um, and then we'll talk that a little bit. funny. <laughs> <laughs> Not funny. Um, and again, this is some spoilers in here, so. 40 years. We worked together off and on for 40 years. Not for the last five or so, but for the 35 years prior. Why have you not worked together in the last five years? Some sort of falling out? Simply a lack of attractive offers. I think we knew we were toast where Milton Keynes wanted us to give our ugly sisters. <laughs> How would you categorise your relationship in that time? Fruitful. I don't know. We work well together. And you liked each other? Some days more than others. These filming days, they can be pretty intense, am I right? Our budgets have always been tight on the work we've done. And when you weren't on camera, you'd have your own trailers? Once we were established, yes. How much time would you spend in each other's trailer? Generally quite a bit. Uh, we worked on scripts, did private rehearsals. That sort of thing. And you'd be aware if each other had visitors? Or... Yes, but privacy was possible. We weren't in each other's pockets. Well, to be clear, I'm, I'm asking if Paul had women in his trailer, you would generally know about it? Generally. Did he have many women in his trailer? He was a philanderer. I think that's been established by now. Did his philandering ever cause issue for you? Yes. I liked his wife, liked his wife. So were you privy to many moments of his relations with women? How close do you think we were, sir? <laughs> you could answer the question. If you're talking sexual acts, I never saw him do anything with any women. Never heard anything you shouldn't? No. How many women would you say you saw him with? I wouldn't like to estimate. And you never saw a woman leave his room in a state of distress, or...? No. You seem unsure. No, I'm not unsure. But can I say, I never saw any action from Paul or anyone else that would 
suggest who capable of red. Let me take you back to Bedford. Oh, I can't remember Bedford. Can I just... Oh, no, man. Had a busy life. Can't remember anything of that day. Believe me, I've tried. My heart stopped just watching it again. <laughs> um, Mark and Tim, can you talk a little bit about the conversations that you had about taking on this subject? I mean, this is a very, you know, a kind of very personal, very difficult, um, very kind of contentious uh, arena that you were stepping into and a story that you were <coughs> trying to uncover. Can you describe a little bit about the kind of, you know, if, there were, if you had any anxiety about being associated with this project, with this subject? You know, what, what did you say to each other? What did you say to kind of persuade you, Tim, and the other cast members to take part? Um. Well, I think T Tim's character, you know, for those of you that haven't seen the series, is, is really very much about someone who's he's 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 loyal to Paul for his own reasons as well mm. as uh, uh, more magnanimous reasons. But he, you know, there's a there's a sort of long-standing collusion between the two characters, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's the, I mean, that was one of the things that fascinated me was that, um, that in, in the, the present time of the story and also throughout their past history, that, that their relationship is so, um, I mean, they love each other, but it's very abrasive mm. and difficult and um, um, there's a lot of uh, one-upmanship and, and trying to actually almost hurt the other person at the same time as as uh, um, concealing it under the under the guise of um, improvisation. <laughs> but it, and this was one of the one of the things that was what was fascinating about uh, the rehearsal period. I mean that that the two weeks rehearsal was just. Gold dust. I mean, you can't, because you can't replicate cold a forty-year relationship. Mm. You just can't. I don't care who you are. <laughs> you know, you need to. You need to. You need to dig into it. And that was a lot of what we what we all did. And Robbie, Robbie, and I did. There was one. I mean, there was one. There was a point that was very funny when uh, Robbie and I were having a conversation about about the past and and what what kind of characters uh, Carl and Paul were, what kind of comics they were, and what their relationship was. And it was after about 20 minutes that we both realized we, we each thought that we were Eric Morecambe. <laughs> 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 but that's interesting in itself, you see. I mean, that actually, um, I mean, apart from the fact, I mean, it was funny to us at, at the time, but, but that they do, you know. Yeah. That's that's the competition. That's the competitive element. It's not Eric and Ernie. It's actually, it's two Eric's vying for popularity and and the 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 uh, the complication of 
me being, uh, um, uh, as it were, a single man who, this is his kind of surrogate family as well. And, and he loves Mari. He's very close to Dee, the daughter. She can talk to him, actually. Mm. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's incredibly complicated. And you got that complication from uh, a lot of that complication from the initial reading. I mean, that's, what, that's what's attractive. I mean, for, for an actor, or at least for me, um, if I can see that something is going to be difficult to do, then I want to do it. Mm. Uh, if something's easy, I'm not really interested. Mm -hmm. Do you think the others took it on because it was difficult? Pardon? Do you think the others took it on because it was difficult? Um, yes, and important. I mean, I think that, yeah. that you know, that, that we had a lot of discussion about those comedy partnerships where people, you know, Eric, Eric and Ernie is a really great example where people, you know, one person is deemed to be more, you know, successful than the other. I mean, I think that is the thing that Jack totally got right. It was the amount of jealousy um, and sort of anger and, you know, sort of brooding resentment that goes on in those partnerships. Um, you know, people think, you know, comedy is a sort of, you know, knockabout sort of, you know, like, but there's a lot of anger and resentment in comedy. And, um, and uh, Carl... Sir Carl, as it is, he's <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. more successful than 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 Paul Finchley. I mean, he you know, you know, Carl has gone on to do serious acting, where Paul is is doing a game show. So, so, you know, the, the, even though they're very close, um, they um, you know, there's there's the, there's a lot of tension there between the two of them. So, in answer to your question, it really you know, it wasn't. It wasn't about the issue of sort of celebrity abuse, you know, sex, historic sex crimes. It was really more to do with the world of comedy and how those partnerships work and things. And, and that fed into the way that the, the mystery of what Paul's actually done unfolds because um, uh, 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 Carl sort of holds the key to that uh, and were just waiting to find out what he's going to say, whether he's going to tell the truth about Paul or not. And we did have a lot of conversations as well about the, I mean, sort of, as it were, outside the, the, the confines of the script about the situation, because it was so, it was in the news every day. Mm. I mean, and you kind of... Did you actively go and look, or did you concentrate more well, on what was um, the page? No, no... Well, you kind of didn't. You didn't have to. It was there on the front page. You kind of. You couldn't avoid it. You know. So, but but also, I mean, one has. Uh, if you have any kind of celebrity at all, then you know. Um, on on that on that side of it, you know how intrusive uh, um, the 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 media etc. Et can be on your on your life, uh, and. Um, I mean, and very specifically, I, I, I um, Paul Gambaccini is one of my best friends. And he was hounded by the police uh, and put under virtual um, house arrest for a year and a half. And I saw somebody, I saw his mind crumbling. Mm. I saw him falling apart and becoming like, you know, the, at the end of... Um, Lenny, the Lenny Bruce film, where he, he keeps pu pulling out the, the, 
the notices of his, that's what Paul Gambaccini was doing. And now, and, the, and they've written this about me today. It was just, it was very, very, very difficult. Mm. And that was a case of somebody who was, uh, who was completely innocent. But, you know, so there are lots of, there are, there's that side as well. So, you, I mean, and, and what was, the, I mean, one of the hardest things for, for all of us was maintaining that, that balance of um, not giving anything away or not, not making, actually not making anything look as though you're concealing anything either. It's, it's, a, it's a very fine thing. And, and, you know, you don't want it to look like an episode of Midsummer Murders. Not that that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. But uh, it's, a, it's, a much, it's a much finer thing. And, you need, and it, that's, why, that's partly why it's a, it's a whole collaborative thing. Mm -hmm. that, you know, everybody has to be on board with that. And, and watching for the slightest thing that tips the balance in a, in a take or something. You know? mm -hmm. um, let me just ask one more question about the casting. And then let's talk a little bit more about the kind of look and feel. Um, this is a slightly sort of sounds like a bit of a daft question, but um, could you have imagined this piece with lesser actors? I mean, you've got, you know, you've got national treasure actors uh, in all the kind of key roles. And part of the familiarity with those, part of the reason that it, that it works for an audience member is because we recognise all these people as being our kind of icons. And could you have done it in a way that you've done with some of your other work with people who were less well-known? Would it have worked? Yes, of course, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, the reason for casting Tim and Robbie and Julie was not because they're national treasures, but because, I, I, you know, one of my worries about the piece was that um, it's such a difficult subject that I worried that people would come to it at all. Uh, you know, you don't really get a sense from trailers, you know, what a piece is really about. You don't get the sense of, you know, is it a, you know, I mean, you know, there are very, very much things that we injected into this which make, made it not a social realist piece about the issue of abuse. But, um, you know, one of the things <coughs> that you can do to bring an audience to, to something is to use people that are well-known and good and are great faces. Robbie was, you know ingenious casting by Sheen Bay. Um, you know, he hadn't done anything for quite a while. People love him. Um, uh, and he was brilliant. And um, that was, to you know, very responsible for getting so many people. You know, the, the piece was a success in terms of its audience figures. And, and that was a big factor in it, I think. But uh, so it wasn't really about people playing themselves in some sort of way, but actually the idea of having sort of people that are iconic and bringing an audience to the to the show. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the tone and the kind of look that you were going for. I mean, it's interesting you talked at the beginning about this is a social, this theoretically is a sort of social realist drama, or it could have been a social realist drama. But actually, and I think you probably got a sense of that from that clip there. It's almost like you <coughs> you made a. Well, it is. You made a thriller. You made, or you made a kind of genre piece. There are there are elements where it's almost horror, um, and I wondered what kind of conversations, or at what point you arrived at that decision, and then what kind of conversations you had with your kind of creative team about the kind of look and feel of the piece. Um, yeah, I mean, Luke and Ulla can talk about this as well. But I, I um, it was really, really important to me that it wasn't that it, it, it was a sort of it was a thriller, and it wasn't just about 
did he or didn't he do it. It was also about um, the tension around the family. Uh, but I, I think what I gradually came to realize as we started to prepare it was that it was also a horror in some sort of way, you know, because the, the horror genre really is about dread. And um, I, th I think I realized that it was all about the dread of finding out the truth, this piece. Um, it was about the, the, the dread of finding out whether Paul had actually abused Dee, of whether Paul had done this. It was, you know, it was a, it, there was a lot of things which you were sort of dreading, which is what, it, which is what adds to the tension of it, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, that fed itself into the grammar of the piece, the way that we shot it, particularly in the house, where you have these loaded, empty spaces and you're, 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 you're examining these loaded, empty spaces in a way that a horror film would, would do. I mean, when, when we're actually shooting it, you felt, I mean, as actors, you felt the weight of that dread all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the time. It was, it was extraordinary. It was, ex I mean, it was one of the reasons it was exhausting, because at the end of the day, you just had a terrible weight on your shoulders. And... Um, and it didn't let up, because it doesn't, because it doesn't, you know, it's like being in seven or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that same kind of dread. Yeah. yeah. You know. But then it was a question of, you know, finding the, the grammar for that, and that, you yeah. know, that obviously, we, that came out of working with Ulla mm -hmm. and Luke. We'd been watching a lot of uh, uh, paranoid, the, the sort of, the, the, the Alan J. Pakula par paranoid trilogy, mm -hmm. you know, the Clute and... Uh, a, a parallax view, um, and you know, watching the conversation, I, I, I wanted it to be a piece which um, was a bit like that. In as much as you're having to piece together the information yourself, and you're having to bring your own ideas to the piece without um, without being told whether you're right or not. Mm -hmm. So that was a, that was a big thing, wasn't it? Although, I mean, yeah. Should we, should we look at one? We'll look at one specific yeah. sequence, and then perhaps persuade you to talk us through it and talk yeah. about the, you know, kind of how you realised it and how you got the tone that you did. Um, should we have a look at the next clip, please? You're looking fresh. You know, those people, those beautiful ways to describe your mother. Well, and Kyle always sounds so boring, don't they? I'm much, no, wonderful spread, not boring at all. Exotic, even. Thank you for making me feel so special and all that. I know what they said about you was cruel. And I want you to be able to let that go. Mm. This is a pale. Just be good for him. Tonight, he's on the edge. Ah, oh, it's not a payoff for the bride. Don't use it for anything stupid. Okay, I'll pay for the coat with my own money then. I don't care for the jaded act. You know I don't. This is about support. He supported you. We both yeah, have. I'm gonna put that support in quotation marks if that's okay. And now, he needs us. said I was living some sort of hell. It said things that I'd said. It said things that 
quote that Melanie was my support group. Did you read it? Well, I knew I knew you were misunderstood. But what if I wasn't, Mum? What if he did? What if he, what if he, what if he was fucking the babysitter? What if he did it to me? Because part of me just thinks that maybe that's probably the way that I. I think I can't remember, but what if I can't trust that mum? What if I can't trust that kicking bill of health because Christina... Christina was a stupid girl and remains one. Nothing happened between them. You didn't see them because it didn't happen. Well, couldn't that be the... Isn't that a reason? Couldn't that be the reason that I am what I am? No. I have a good memory. And I've seen, th I've seen things your father didn't want me to see. Very early on, after I saw that stuff, he promised he would be honest. You're his confessional. At first, he tried to secrete things away. He's a weak man. But I could smell it. I could smell his lies, and I told him so. He cried, broke down, he begged forgiveness, and I told him I just wanted the truth. So then, every time he was weak, once, twice a year, he'd tell me, and I forgive him. Because he was never, he is never unfaithful in an important way, in a way that matters. Well, that's an interesting claim to make. Look, he didn't do this. None of it. He certainly never touched you. Didn't even suggest that. You're as weak as he is. But I will not let you use him as an excuse for a life poorly led. An excuse? No, victims. Everybody wants to be a victim these days because it makes life so much easier to explain. And yeah, if I were you, I would love the convenience of that. Unemployed. Unemployable untrustworthy, unwell, not even allowed time with your kids on your own. Happy birthday. Oh, what? You, you want pity? You? The girl I found outside Christina's yesterday? You want to get better, Dee? Get better. But don't wallow in this, in these lies, because I tell you, I can forgive anything, but I will not forgive you that. I choose to believe him. Do you understand that? Just as I choose to believe that you will recover. Now, wipe your nose, pull yourself together, sort out your face, and come downstairs when you're ready. There are people down there waiting to tell you you're loved. Oh, <laughs> keep the lie down. <laughs> 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 Ola, talk us through the decisions on a, a scene like that. I mean, an incredible scene, which, frankly, you could have had round a kitchen table and it would still have been a great scene, but you've made it into an extraordinary kind of visceral piece. T talk us through the kind of decisions about holding the camera, about the lighting, about who you were focusing on and who you weren't. Well, it's, to be fair, you know, it, it starts with Mark, you know, in the sense that it starts with the actors. Let's face it. It starts with a scene, you know, and the scene, it's an incredibly complicated scene, uh, you know, uh, in the sense that there's so much going on with it. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, you can never quite do it justice because you always have little bits you want to look at and go, oh, I may have missed that, missed that. But um, Mark, once we get inside the bedroom, always had the thought to do is a single shot. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you do that with two people talking, of course, you get into that thing of, well, who do you look at and what time? And 
you could, of course, go, here's a wide shot, two people talking. And that can work. Mm -hmm. But Is that how it was written? Well, it's, Do you remember? It's never written in the script as wide shot, two people talking. Right. Well, if it is, it shouldn't it should be, be sent out. <laughs> <laughs> it was written as dialogue. But it was yeah. like whatever it was, five pages of dialogue. Yeah. That's what it was. It was like a play in there. Yeah. And, you know, it's beautiful, but it's also incredibly complicated because you then keep going into, okay, so you have the question of coverage, as in, should we do it as a wide shot and then go in for close-ups and then you leave it to Luke to just cut it and hope for the best. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll come to how that works in a minute. <laughs> or, you know, and Mark says, I really want to try and do it as one shot. And so we talked about it. And the only way to do that in that sense is to do it handheld because you need to be quite intimate with the actors. Mm -hmm. And um, the hardest bit is doing it too many times because you get too familiar with the text and then not knowing the text enough to be instinctual. So I can't remember, but I think this was sort of take three. To get to get the, yeah. to get the camera and the actors doing all of that for that length of time is just, I thought it was, when I watched The Rushes, I was absolutely blown away. Mm. Absolutely. But you did do several takes, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, what was... What happens in a situation like that is Ulla's not pulling focus, it's the focus puller who's pulling focus. So, so you have to make a decision about who you're pulling focus to at each point. So we have like this little sort of, you know, um, uh, we had like this signal where I'd, I'd go like that for, for Julie or that for, you know, that way or that way, you know, pulling from one to the other. Now, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, but 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 really, that's all based on sort of something bigger, which is really about who giving giving the audience information at any one point. And a lot of the time, the decisions that we made about this was to deprive the audience of information, which is why sometimes you're looking at Andrew Riseborough, but you actually have the side of Julie's face in in focus, you know, or you're going round the other way and you're seeing a little bit of the side of. Andreas and you're seeing Julie completely out of focus um, and it was about playing with that and about what information you give to the audience at any one time I mean very often in TV drama it's really about you know people talking you know this and, and this was this was a very very talky script I mean it was a script um, you know in in the first episode there's a there's a 12 page scene of two people talking in a room around a table you know it's brilliant but as a filmmaker, how do you sort of bring that to life in a way that it doesn't feel like you're just shooting a play? Um, you know, it's partly with the sort of performances, but it's also with the grammar of what you're, what you're doing with it and what you're looking at and what you're not looking at. And that was the decisions behind the, the focusing, as it were. So Ulla's doing his thing where he's looking at one person, then he, when, he, when he feels he should come round, he's coming round to the other person. And I'm doing another thing where I'm going, well, actually, as you come round, we're just going to pull focus onto the same person that you've left. So, so it was a sort of combination of things. Yeah. I didn't actually cut that episode. Simon Smith cut that episode. But I do know that even though it's one shot, it has multiple speed ramps in it. Ah. Uh, yeah. And zooms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's digital zooms in there. So make sure that we're forcing the audience to focus on something. Mm -hmm. And if we want to s slow something down or speed something up just to get the, just get the rhythm of the piece going in a certain way, then we just do it digitally, which is... 
you can do now. Mm. <laughs> Quite easy. <laughs> I mean, that's partly what's behind people interrupting each other. There's, there's, there's about 120 speed ramps in the first episode. So, so, so you're, what you're doing is you're sort of ramping up in the gaps, as it were, you know, if you want something to be particularly combative. And also, slow, there's a lot of slowdowns as well. There's a lot of real slow motion, like moments of slow motion where you're trying to drag out an audience, uh, a performance look or a, you know, a particular dramatic um, thing. So there's a lot of digital work going on One in that. One of Mark's very early notes was, I don't want to cut unless we have to. Okay. So we would always try and stay on the actor. But, I mean, it, it, it progresses from there because then you're talking, you're talking about the p lies people are telling and you want to see who you're looking at for the lie, whether you're looking at the liar or the person that wants to believe the lie. Mm. So yeah. there are lots of choices there. So there were moments where we cut just for that. Yeah. But does that mean that the thing is unbelievably choreographed? I mean, the, the, particularly the way that you're directing them. I mean, that's a long take and that's a yeah. really intense scene. Well, they're not How moving. much did they hit the same marks every time you yeah. each, each... They're not moving at all. It's only Ola that's moving in that. You yeah, know, she drags... I, um, I fuck it up a lot. So <laughs> generally what happens is, you know, about take four, I go, OK, I remember now. You know, so, um, but they're just standing there talking. So in a very, very intense way. Uh -huh. um, so it's, it's a combination of what Mark does with the focus puller. Sometimes I f get really into it and I forget what I was supposed to do. <laughs> and I do something completely different. And then my focus puller, I have to do something else. And at some point, hopefully, we get it all right. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason for doing lots of takes is not always to, to get the performance right. I mean, very much. You know, one of the reasons that I do lots of takes, and Tim will testify to this, <laughs> is that I'm trying to get different performances which I can bracket in a different, you know, I bracket performances so I can alter the arc in the cutting room. You know, so that, 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 that take is a particularly angry version of Julie Walters' character, you know, and, and that's her being very, very um, overtly spiteful to, to Dee. But there are other takes which are, you know, the choreography is probably different, but actually um, she's probably being less spiteful, you know. And, and, and you, need, you, need all those different, you need all those different performances when you're in the cutting room and uh, you, you alter the arc of the character's performance, you know, uh, uh, alter the arc of the character as it goes through. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a decision that Luke and I will make together you know I'm on the phone to Luke every night having watched rushes about you know what we should be doing about the, you know individual scenes and I write notes and things and Luke will always have you know one of the reasons that I really love working with Luke is he's totally totally brutally frank <laughs> <laughs> simple <laughs> but 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 and, and in a really good way because he'll just tell tell you if something's not working because you can sort of delude yourself. It, you know, shooting is always hell and it's just always chaos and you're always making compromises and things. And um, so you're hoping that something's all right. And then, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, very often Luke will say, look, forget about that. Just, that just does not work. Or, you know, <laughs> or something is brilliant, which he didn't think was particularly brilliant. So that, you know, it, it's very much... He's like the arbiter of those bits of shrapnel that get yeah. returned to the cutting room. <laughs> I mean, there are, you know, lucky accidents happen, but lucky accidents happen 
because of the atmosphere of work that you've created. You know, they don't actually come out of nowhere, mm -hmm. ever. You know, and and um, Are you and of course specific? one of the things about uh, about the, uh, is that uh, the rehearsal period. I mean, not with every scene, obviously, but with but with but with certain scenes, we were able to um, work out what was the, the the physicality of the of the usually two people and their and their movements and that so so you had a kind of a rough blueprint before you start actually shooting which then can change completely mm -hmm. of course but you have something you know and we know we know where we're going I mean one of the things um, with uh, endless takes with Mark is that <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you, one of the things? One of the things he does is uh, I, I. It feels to us anyway is that um, because you, you, I mean you know usually people do a lot of takes because they don't know what they're doing and feel they have to cover themselves in all sorts of ways because they haven't worked out what they should be doing in advance, or <laughs> or, or the technical things go wrong. Obviously, then you have to you know, do do a different take or. They don't like what the actors are doing, so keep pushing them in a in a particular direction that's actually um, limiting. What Mark does is one of the reasons I, I, Mark does lots of takes is that Mark finds something interesting in, in a take, and then wants you to take that further. Mm. So you end up you end up digging in a in a Instead of broadening it out, you end up digging deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's just and you you you're going down a rabbit hole. It's from, it's an extraordinary process. Mm -hmm. And you are the man who has to sort out all those takes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark and I, Mark, we will talk. Usually, either lunchtime if they get a lunch break, or in the evening, mm -hmm. and we will talk um, very specifically about each take, and which one worked and which one didn't, and if. Um, like just when I first saw Robbie, it was like, okay, he doesn't. He, I mean, he, he doesn't move much anyway, but it, he didn't need to. Mm. It's like his face was just so fascinating. It was like, okay, use his face. So those sort of conversations with Mark every day. Mm -hmm. But sorting out the takes, Mark makes extensive notes. As so you go. Yeah. As you go along. Yeah, yeah. I watch every. I watch all the rushes, rushes every night, and I'll, I'll, I'll circle the takes you know or then maybe you know you know let's use that for if we're going to take her in that direction or let's use this if we're going to take her in this direction you know stuff like that um but yeah i'm i'm pretty i'm i, I you know I, I i like to watch the rushes in the cold light of day i like to get off the set and then the, you're normally watching the rushes the next day and just watch them you know cold you know and uh that that that's is just always a good lesson Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll cut with his notes and sometimes I won't. If I'm, yeah. like, I'm not sure about the scene, I'll definitely use Mark's notes. But if I've watched the rushes and gone, up, I really like that take, mm -hmm. I'm going to use that take, and then I'll go back to Mark's notes and see if he, we agree. Mm -hmm. But by, when we get into the cutting room, we play with everything anyway. Mm -hmm. We use every single take. Let's look at a, an example of something that you cut, um, most of it, of course, apart from our last scene. Um, let's have one final clip, and then also we'll, we'll go to some questions quite quickly. Yeah. 
He's doing lines, I think. Is he? What? Is he taking a turn for the worst? What? Is he taking an overdose? He's in his trailer. I'll, I'll get him. He's with the director, I think. Get, get the car running, let me. I'll, I'll extract him. I'll, I'll, I'll run. The film relies on flashbacks, but they're used incredibly sparingly. Can you talk a little bit about the um, decisions you make around flashbacks? You know, kind of ha you know, the, the, particularly in, in terms of the, the specific cuts. You know, how you how you play with kind of when to cut between one se one era and the other. Um, flashbacks are a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I asked you. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a, you're given access to that one quite easily through mm. Julie. So it's, that, that's one of the easier ones because it very much feels like it's coming from her. Mm. Um, and then, I mean, I think the, sh the shots, they're pretty much single shots. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that first sequence. The first sequence. There's at least five cuts. There's at least five cuts. <laughs> um, but just delaying information <laughs> and I mean, they're quite long flashbacks, actually, mm. generally. But there's a lot of information there, mm -hmm. which um, we want to give the audience about quick, fairly slowly. Mm -hmm. So they have to work it out. And reactions, we always play the reactions longer than you probably traditionally would do. Mm -hmm. Presumably the um, guilt question was something that was incredibly critical between you two and the the, point, the, 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 the way you reveal or how much you reveal yeah. before the final episode. Lots of discussion. Oh, go on, tell us. <laughs> About the monster. Yeah. <laughs> when do we really reveal the monster? Uh -huh. um, I can't remember when we first started, which episode it became an issue, story terms. Well, I think you know by episode three that the contract that Paul has had with Mari has been broken, you know, if they ever had a contract about his prom promiscuity. Um, so I think that, you know, he's guilty of something, you know, he, even if it's breaking up his, uh, you know, betraying Mari. And at that point in the series, I think it's as important a, a, a sort of uh, a dramatic moment as, a, as anything to do with his guilt vis-a-vis -vis the complainants. Um, I think that, you know, the main thing about Paul is that he was written as this sort of vain, opaque 
uh, selfish man. And you never know whether he's telling the truth or not. And it was really a question of how much does Robbie give away? Um, and you had to be really, really careful about which takes you use because sometimes when... You know, I did a lot of takes with Robbie for that because sometimes when he'd be too trying too hard to convince Mari, it felt like he was lying, and therefore it felt like he was guilty. So it wasn't really anything to do with the performance. It was about like how you perceive the performance as the audience. So there was a lot of discussion about how you, how you monitor that, wasn't there, I think? Yeah, and we'd watch an early cut. <coughs> the process we go through is we might went watch an assembly when he comes in, and we will work from scene one all the way through to the end. And then we will, so it takes about two weeks before we actually watch the first cut. Mm -hmm. Once Mark come, comes back from shooting, is that unusual? Uh, for uh, compared to other directors, yeah. yes. Okay. Uh, generally, it's a very good way to work. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but we would have discussions, that, and then from then on, we would watch it quite regularly. Mm. Um, and then after each one, we'd go, okay, he's too guilty at this point, or we don't, we 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 can see his lie too much. So we'd have to rein it back. And it wouldn't be much. It would just be either we would be looking at somebody else or I'd use a slightly different nuanced performance from somebody. But you would only tell once you watch the whole episode. Mm -hmm. There was also something quite interesting in the first episode, which was once they get off <coughs> the stage um, that the, on the clip that you saw, um, <coughs> Paul and Carl have this conversation in the corridor about, uh, about what they've just done on stage. And there's a little bit of prickliness in there. And when um, I, I, and there's a little bit of resentment from Paul, which was written in the, in the script. And you, that really influenced the way that you, th you thought of Paul right from the very, very beginning, that actually he was actually not a very nice person. I mean, you saw the person that you might reveal at the end of the of the four episodes. You saw a little bit of that. And, and you know, it was really a question of just making sure that, that that wasn't ever revealed in any way. You know, so it wasn't really to do with was he guilty or wasn't he, but it was just about the way that the audience might perceive him at any one point. You've got to keep him as this sort of buoyant, neutral, opaque character who's, who's, who's you know, full of witty blandishments and, um, uh, 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 and, and is funny. I mean, there's a lot of Robbie in that character, um, you know, as there is a lot of Tim in Carl. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of personality in those things and you had to just keep those monitored, you know. So it wasn't really about, just about his guilt. It was just about his, you know, whether the audience liked him or not. Mm. And that was a, always a big discussion. Ulla was, like, right on top of that all the time, you know, when we were <laughs> shooting because we were doing a lot of big close-ups of, of, of Paul and he, you know, you'd, you'd quite often whisper in my ear, wouldn't you, after a take? Yeah, a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> what, it's too nice? Or? No, no, it's just because the first thing you have is, like, you know, I'm there right in front of the actors and... I sometimes had a camera this close to Tim, and it's uncomfortable, but it also means you're probably the closest person yeah. to the performance ever. So, yeah. you know, whilst Mark has to often be slightly removed, just physically, so if I say to Mark, I'm not sure I buy it, then he can have a look at it again. 
Presumably, yeah. <laughs> Presumably it's a huge balancing act as well, though, because I remember um, at the beginning, having watched episode one and then seeing the reviews, there was a lot of discussion of kind of like, how are they going to get out of this? Because either, you know, if he's, if he's, if he's guilty, what does that say about blah de blah blah? If he's innocent, what does that say? What do we? What are we trivialising rape? Yeah. You know, it's kind of it's a, it's a it's a kind of ethical dilemma for you all to to determine how to balance this character. Yeah, I mean, I I think anyone that had thought more than two minutes about it would realise that we weren't going to get to the end of the, the episode, the end of the series, and and have an innocent man because that would have mean that, that either you're dismissing the complainants in some sort of way or. Or, you know, there wasn't enough evidence. Except, of course, that some of the complainants turned out to be <laughs> innocent. I mean, some of the complainants, yes, no, other way around, guilty. guilty. Some of the, some of the, what do you call them? The, Compl the, the, the I mean, the women accused, that made... Thank you. Some of the accused turned out yeah. to be innocent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but in the real world, but I mean, in our world, it yeah. feels like, you know, I, I think it'd be very, very difficult to make a piece which where he turns out to be innocent. And, and for me, it was about, as I said earlier, it was about that gray area. So it was perfect in a way that he is clearly guilty, but he's, um, uh, he's uh, acquitted. Mm -hmm. And the, the psychology of the audience, I, 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 I think, is that audiences, even when they're presented with somebody who the, on, on balance looks guilty and is a bitter, twisted, difficult person as well. But then they feel defensive about them. It's really interesting. Whereas if somebody's really nice all the time, people don't really <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? That gets very wearing over four episodes. Yeah. <laughs> but we had to like him enough to care what yeah, happened. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's okay. all very, it's subtle gradations. Mm -hmm. right. Let's take some questions. Hi there, thanks very much. Um, one thing we haven't spoken about yet today is the incredibly haunting and deeply moving score by Christopher Tapia de Vere, which of course won the Craft Award. Um, I'd like to know, Mark, and well, potentially Luke as well, just a little bit more about your relationship with Christopher, um, you know, from various series you've done in the past, but predominantly um, with this, you know, how did you arrive at that specific sound? You know, how much input did you have? How much input did Christopher have? Um, yeah. Uh, such a big question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, we've been working with Christo for quite a while. I can't remember if we used any of his temp on this. I mean, I, we don't generally put temp on. Um, I might do just without Mark hearing it, just to, for my own pleasure to make sure that it's going to work. But Christo starts feeding us ideas as we're going along. So, if, I mean, a series like, I don't know how many weeks we're in the cutting room, a lot. 12, 15, something like that. So he'll get involved. He'll, he'll start sending him stuff as long as he's free um, while Mark's shooting. And they're sketches, and they're nowhere near what you hear at the end. But they're ideas, and we'll start using those very early on. And then Mark will start a discussion with Christo about where he should push it. And the bells was quite a big thing, wasn't it? He started off with the... Yeah, I mean, there were different things. So <clears throat> generally what Christo comes up with is something quite broad, so he'll actually score the piece for what you're, what you're seeing in the piece, as it were. You know, so that's where he starts. It's sort of interesting, and it, but it's not really what one wants generally. And, and also he'll come up with various ideas, which are all very different. Um, very early on, he came up with, he, he'd, he'd sampled a lot of bells 
Um, and uh, uh, he'd also done something with a sort of bass theme, which ended up being the bell tune, as it were. And the, but he was absolutely adamant that he, you know, th th this bell that was ringing, which is the church bell that you hear when, when Paul's arrested, that he couldn't harmonize that in some sort of way. And I was saying, look, that, that, that other theme that you've got, maybe you could do the bells like that and just put sort of harmonies underneath. Do you remember that? Yeah, we would and have, because he's, he's in Canada. Yeah. So no, he came over here for this, though, didn't he? Yeah, but then he goes back. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we've got <laughs> Skype. Uh, no, and he doesn't turn up until we're yeah, three or we, four weeks in. Yeah. So we'd be on Skype with Christopher. Mark's shouting about bells. <laughs> and, and, and the, you know, the thing about Christo is that he sort of, you know, music just pours out of him. He's just sort of brilliant. You know, he then never gets blocked or anything. He'll just keep on producing music. And, and, and then he, and of course, he got the bells and he put these harmonies to it. And it was just sublime. And I, I loved it. And I wanted to use it everywhere. Um, and then he just made it even better with voices and things like that. So, so he, you know, he, he just he doesn't very do it to picture either to start with. He doesn't do it to picture uh -huh. at all. So he very much responds uh -huh. to like little notes in a very productive and interesting way. And I, I, you know, a lot of the piece, you know, the, the music starts off as sort of quite drunken. A lot of it, um, and it reflects the sort of, you know, it reflects the era from which sort of Paul Finchley comes from. And then gradually, um, the, the piece turns into a, like a... I, I think the piece as a whole turns into a piece about a haunting of some kind, but the music helps that because it's very sort of ghostly, a lot of it. So, so it sort of moves. So I was pushing him in that sort of haunted direction as he goes, <coughs> as he goes on. Um, but it's a very, you know, I find the relationship with a composer the most, you know, one of the most intimate, you know. I mean, I, 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 I used to do the music for my films myself years ago, and I know really, in my head, I know exactly how it should sound. So, it, and, and that's not always a good thing, I think, because you want, you want to give the composer the, the reins and be able to, you know, but I... I, I um, so it's, I, always, I find it quite difficult a lot of the time, but he is so sort of brilliant that he always comes up with, with stuff that you could never imagine, you know, and, and, and always in a sort of quite a counterintuitive way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank, thank you all for uh, creating some really interesting drama. Uh, I confess I hadn't actually seen it when it was first broadcast, so I did a... Uh, like a four-hour marathon this afternoon <laughs> of the, the entire thing. Um, my question was relating to the casting of the younger versions of the characters, which I felt, um, you know, captured the essence of the of the actors, the primary actors, very well, especially the one for, for Tim. Um, I just wondered if you could talk about work, how you pick them and working with them and whether they spend any time with their older counterparts in the rehearsal process. Um, <clears throat> they did, I, I think they did, um, they did at some point, but they got quite freaked out by, <laughs> by watching them. Um, I think Cara Barton, anyway, was particularly sort of, uh, who, 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 um, who plays the young uh, Kate Hardy, um, got quite freaked. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, 
we work with them separately, I think, mostly. I mean, those, the, the, the flashbacks in the piece were originally much longer. I mean, that was the thing about, you know, when, when you asked about the flashbacks, you know, like how do they work and things. I mean, I still don't know. I'm totally baffled by flashbacks. <laughs> there's a flashback, I don't know if anyone's seen Wind River, but there's a sort of brilliant flashback in, in that film where it just cuts to, to the time before and you see what has gone on and it's sort of brilliant. It comes out of totally out of nowhere and it just works. I don't know why that works and something that, you know, something else doesn't. So I am a bit baffled by them, but I do think that one of the things about flashbacks is they should be short, you know. Um, but, um, but uh, uh, you know, um, but originally those flashback scenes were much longer, so there were big things to work on with the actors, particularly the young actors and things. Um, um, you know, you cast young... Uh, most, what I love to do is cast people that can do comedy. So we cast a lot of people that could do comedy. I mean, Tim, Tim knows that. And, you know, that, that, that it feels like, even if they're playing straight roles, they bring something extra to it. And we cast the young people in that vein as well. So Lucy Speed and Eddie Oswite and, um, and, and uh, Tristan Gravel, they're all people that can do comedy. Um, uh, and we just worked alone with them. And I suppose, you know, part of it was um, just making them look a little bit more like them. But there were probably discrepancies in the accents and all that sort of business. I don't know. Did he do a good you? I mean, I did a, I did a tape of the way... I mean, in rehearsal. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. kind of... Yeah, you, I mean, you're kind of... It's, it's one of those uh, slightly tricky things where you're making a decision about the way you're speaking for your character 30 years ago to copy, even though you haven't quite decided what you're going to do yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, <laughs> so that was when you had to actually, so it was a good thing, because that was when I actually had to make a decision about exactly how I was going to speak, because otherwise it's not going to work. But uh, what, what freaked me out was how much he looked like m me when I was at eight. He really did. <laughs> so I was just as freaked out as he was. <laughs> uh, Oh, hello. Uh, I have a question for Mark. Um, the series followed um, the sort of impact of the press and more on Paul Finchley's life and his family, followed by the ambiguity of the case up until the climatical trial. Um, I was wondering whether you and Jack had ever discussed the sort of deeper, much more difficult question as to why Paul's character did what he did. Yeah, I mean, I, we did. Um, it was Jack's decision really to keep him opaque. I mean, Jack, right from the very beginning, said, this man is a monster. I mean, he always, he always believed he was a total monster. There was no sort of light and shade in the way that he thought of him, you know, in a, you know morally, as it were. Um, and uh, although we talked about... <clears throat> You know, he's an inadequacy. There's a, there's a lot, you know, there is stuff in the film as well about where he talks about his father and his father abusing him and things like that. But I, I'm not sure that it was really very helpful to, I, I, you know, I, I, I feel there's a risk of it being a little bit reductive when you start to sort of explain away why people do such things, you know, um, when really it was about the here and now and the impact. I mean, the piece is really about the impact of an accusation on uh, what, might or, what might or might not be an innocent man, I suppose. And that is the, that, that is the story of the piece, I think, and the way that it, you know, it affects the family and things. Um, 
So in terms of unpacking the sort of psychology of that, of why he did it, um, uh, felt like it didn't really fit into that, I suppose. But that was a, that was a Jack decision. I mean, I wasn't, you know, he, he wrote that character from start to finish in, in drafts, and he was very, that character never changed from the first draft of his script. I mean, that was the brilliance of the, of the script, really. From the first draft of his script to the last draft of his script, that character never changed in terms of his motivation or what sort of a person he was, you know. Um, uh, so, so it was a jack decision to sort of really, you know, to, to make him, sort of, to make you make your mind up about, about what sort of a man he was. Uh, somebody's got the microphone there, uh, and then you can just pass it along. Sure, yeah. Um, my question's for Tim. Um, I'm interested in uh, the process you go through when preparing for a role. So um, what kind of mechanics or techniques, if any, do you use when developing a character? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Have a drink. Meet <laughs> 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 no, at the uh, bar. <laughs> uh, um, well... Uh, one thing I've done for a very long time, I mean, it's, it, it kind of, in a way, it wasn't so necessary on this because, um, because there is a backstory. But um, if a character uh, begins a story at a moment of crisis, which they, often, which they often do, then you need to, I need, anyway, to know the backstory of that person. It's not even necessary f for anybody else's... Um, uh, it, uh, of interest to anybody else. It just helps you ground that person in some kind of reality. So I, I know that, uh, you know, I mean, I knew the family history of Lord Percy, you know, never mind anything. I mean, I, I approach things in the same way. You create, whether it's, whether it's an extreme comedy or gritty social realism, you, you create a world that has to be... Uh, perfectly consistent and logical. Uh, otherwise, it's not good, whether it's comedy or, or straight drama. It doesn't make any difference. Um, it's, it's the reality that makes it funny. Uh, and, and I approach characters in the same way, regardless of um, what kind of work it is. Um, it's difficult to be specific. Uh, one thing... One thing I always want from a job um, is that I want to go into work uh, every day feeling excited about the day and a bit scared. Because if, unless, unless you've got that edge about being, can I do this? I really, really want to do this, but can I do this? Then, I don't know, it feels soft. Uh, but it's difficult to um, difficult to pin it down, really. Um, what do I do? <laughs> oh God! Um, make sure you get enough sleep. Mm. Um, although that doesn't necessarily apply sometimes. Uh, uh, and and sometimes you go, it depends because the, the, the tone and the style of a piece um, 
for me anyway, um, makes a difference to the way I approach the character. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so with, with this, I mean, there was a lot of, um, I did do actually, um, I probably, this is all coming, oh, it's all coming back to me now. Uh, I probably <laughs> did more reading around than, than, than I realized. Uh, I was more, what you are is you're more, because you're, you're hyper aware of the situation that you're about to play, so you're more, of, uh, you're hyper aware of, of everything that real that is surrounding you in the, in, the, in the newspapers, in the media, with your friends, whatever. That, um, uh, so it, it's, it's hitting you much harder than, you, than it would normally. Um, and that feeds into the work, inevitably, even if it's not conscious. You have to be able to allow. It's a very difficult balance. Um, you have to be um, strong enough to, to take things on board and not let the, uh, the, the scary nature of the subject matter or the grueling nature of the, of the schedule or whatever um, affect you and bring you down. But at the same time, you have to remain completely open and vulnerable um, to anything that, that can help. Uh, and if you, sh if you, I mean, you, you sometimes see it with actors that because they've had um, bad experiences or whatever, they, 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 there's, there's a part of them that shuts down. And it affects your work if you do that. Uh, but it's very hard not to sometimes. Because um, because the cold face of acting is a very <laughs> is a very difficult place to be. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got time Thank for you. one or two more questions. Quick one there, yeah, yeah, it's coming to you. Hi there. A uh, question to Mark and um, and Tim as well. When you're bracketing the performances, um, how would you start that? Would you give it to the actor to see where he or she would take it, and then work from there, or? Um, well, it's a really good example of the thing that you've just seen with when, when, when um, Carl is in the dark, which is where he's, he's, been to he, he, he's been told by Mari that actually if he knows anything about what happened that night, then he better tell, you know. And he says, oh, you know, at the time he says it was a very, very long time ago. And then when he gets in the dark, clearly he knows. I mean, as a character, you know, the character knew, Carl knew what went on there. Um, uh, as you see in the final episode. But there's a point where he's talking where he could be about to say something else, couldn't he? He could be yeah. about to be telling the truth. Yeah. But for Mari, you know, does he do it? Does he, does he, do, is he loyal to Paul or is he loyal to Mari? Um, uh, and uh, he decides to lie in a not very um, competent fashion. And I suppose the thing that, that, I mean, you can talk about this, um, Tim, but I think the thing that struck me when we started working on that was, like, to what degree could he have said something else? You know, something that's not written in the script, but, but, but you know, that was very much part of our process. Like, what could he have said at that point? You know, and, and Tim is, you know, you very much see it 
going through your head as you're doing that speech, yeah. which is, I could be saying this, like, you know, do I say this or not? And it's the degree to which you take that and, and what, the, what, the, what the details of that thing that could have been said is. I'm sorry, what do you think? Yeah, and you, you don't, um, I mean, one of the things I had in, had in my head uh, was that um, Carl doesn't know what he's going to say until the moment he says it. And that's because if, I mean, you can, of course, play it as though he's made that decision to lie in advance, but then the lie would be much smoother. It would be much more practiced. And he's torn between, I mean, as, as Mark said, he's torn between loyalty to Paul and loyalty to Murray, but also uh, the other thing that's in his head is, um, if I betray Paul, it's also going to affect me and my career. I'm going to suffer from the fallout from that as well. So there's a lot of guilt <laughs> for, for Carl in that situation. But I mean, one could have chosen to do, to do it a lot more smoothly, you know, and I suppose it depends on what, you, you know, how much you give the audience really about how much is he lying or not, you know. I think also, I mean, one of the... I mean, you know he's lying anyway, don't you, I think, yeah. by that stage, but, but so it's, it's about the drama of yeah. know, what, what, yeah. what's happening with Mario. I mean, from the, from the beginning, one of the things, I mean, it's, 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 it, sounds, it sounds odd, but one of the things I had in my head was that, because I think it's the only way that the character could get through that first, not just since Paul is accused, but that 30 years is... Uh, that the brain shuts off and doesn't remember or can't remember. Uh, and then it's very it's, it's hard then when you're pushed to it to actually remember what did happen and what didn't and what were the, the, the buttons pushed. And you're kind of convincing yourself. You're very confused. People are very confused, and it's, it's one of the things about the whole story, is that um, is what m what memory is and what memory does. Uh, I mean, you only need to get you know uh, three witnesses to a crime who will all give completely different versions of it, and then you're talking about something that's thirty years old that you're um, very emotionally uh, involved with, and you think you remember something really specific. I'm not talking about Carl now, but you think you remember something really specific, and you can see it happening in front of you, the past, but it's not what happened. And I think that's, you know, levels of kind of, um, like a no play, you know. It's very Japanese in that way, um, Jack's script. Just Final question, Jack. I think. Last chance, better be a good one. It's going to be slightly technical. Um, I want to ask a question about the sound, but not the music. There's a great deal of kind of, I don't know how to describe them, thrumming backgrounds. There's a lot of things like you know intrusion of a plane passing overhead or a moped goes by, and it's intensely loud, uh, and it has a very emotional effect on you. Um, subtly, I'm just wondering how and where and when that was developed in the course of editing, post-production, or before. Well, that, I mean, that's part of the, 
grammar of the horror genre. I mean, we were just using those natural sounds to, to, to disturb people, I suppose. <laughs> used the plane in everything we've done. Yeah, I have, I have used that plane. <laughs> <laughs> Found out. It does tend to crop up quite a lot. <laughs> it's just good because it's a natural, it feels like a natural disturbance, you know, because the sound recorders always go mad when I hear it in the car. And it's like, you know, I spent the whole time on set. You give, yeah, you give the sound a plane there. It's got a plane there. Okay, should we take the plane out? I'm like, no, leave the plane. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's a really good, you know, it's a great sound, I think, plane landing, but um, it's also quite disturbing. Uh, so there's drones, you know, there's drones, there's drones that Christo wrote, Christabel wrote, the composer, which are not really music, but are drones. Uh, so there's some fusion between music and sound with that. But uh, yeah, I like, I like to use those more natural sounds to, to make people uncomfortable. But we do them in the cut, we do them in the cutting room. Yeah, they're all in the cut, they're not, they're not on set. I'm so sorry we have to cut this short now. I feel there's lots of more we could talk about. Thank you so much for great questions. Uh, thank you again to Three Mill Studios for supporting this evening. But most of all, thank you so much to the creative team behind National Treasure. Mark, Tim, Olaf, and Luke.